1: It is the Rugby Dungeon, the podcast about, well, interviews and stuff like that. You're probably wondering why you're hearing the Egg Chasers music over the Rugby Dungeon podcast today, or indeed, why is the Rugby Dungeon podcast on your Egg Chasers feed? It's simply because we want to streamline things a bit over here, and we're going to try putting a few Rugby Dungeons onto Egg Chasers. So, there you go. I have been lucky enough to escape from my day job today. It's Beardmore and Co. Independent Financial Advisors, if you want to have a look at them. But if you don't, you can always find me on Twitter, at jbeardmore. Uh, or you can follow Cocker, my co-host and friend from Egg Chasers, at Cocker. You can follow this podcast at The Ropey Dungeon, or indeed Egg Chasers at... Ooh, rugby podcast, yes. Today's podcast is very very special and frankly uh, I need to give a big shout out and a big thank you first and foremost to Vodafone and in particular their work around the official British and Irish Lions 2021 tour app. This thing really is a lot of fun. Uh, Download the app on your iOS or Android device, build your, your own avatar. Now Avatars come in many, many different ways. Some are better than others. This one is superb. It is based on actual British and Irish Lions players. It incorporates some of the latest gaming technology. And not that you deserve it. Not that you've worked hard enough to become a Lion. But you can become a Lion using this bit of tech. It's absolutely superb. So download the app. Share it with all your mates. Celebrate the Lions. But most importantly, have some fun with it. Because it is tremendous fun. And it is because of the good people at Vodafone that we are able today to talk to Sir Ian McGeegan. So I'm not going to talk any longer. I'm going to let him do the talking. Sir Ian, how are you?
2: I'm I'm good, thank you. Um, just up in the Lake District at the moment. Yeah, well, I'm actually only, uh,
1: only in Manchester, and if it wasn't for this annoying virus, we could have actually do- done this in person.
2: yes. Uh, and unfortunately got to be back home for lockdown uh, tomorrow. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. So I'm going to start off this interview, I guess, um, with something a little bit embarrassing about my um, lack of knowledge, really. So I thought I actually knew quite a lot about you, because I started watching rugby. My rugby obsession started just before Northampton went on their European Cup run. But then I read the book by Tom English called The Grudge, and I found out lots and lots of other stuff. So, I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say is you must have had an awfully generous employer back back in the day.
2: Yes and no. Um, I used to... Um, when I went with the Lions as a player back in the 70s, um, I was teaching. And I had, uh, on the two tours, two very good headmasters um, who gave me time off. Although i didn't get paid um, <laughs> but I did get the time off wow. so there were interesting times we we had to put our mortgage on hold and other things um, as we were um, you know married, just uh, married um, but yes I mean headmasters um, and uh, uh, city council leads that that supported me me going to South Africa and then New Zealand um as a Coach, it wasn't quite as easy. That uh, unfortunately, there's a headmaster by then thinking I was having far too much time <laughs> off uh, and asked me to choose between coaching international rugby or, or teaching. So uh, that is when I I then opted to uh, to come out of teaching and and actually had a very good company um, in Scotland, um, the Scottish Life Insurance Company, who gave me a role with their uh, commercial and uh, media department. So um, they were great, really supportive. So in a way, I've always had people that have allowed me to do what I've wanted to do with the the time that the rugby takes.
1: Yeah, because I've never known anything else really, other than the professional game. So when I was reading about your endeavours back in the day, it, it really jarred. And one of the things which got me was you had to buy your own cassette players <laughs> in order to do your analysis.
2: Yeah, my first cap uh, was with Scotland in 1972 and that first season, um, you you got your first jersey given... And then the subsequent jerseys you had to pay for. No, because um, being um, Scottish with with a Scottish committee, um, it was an amateur game. Therefore, you paid for your jerseys, provided your own shorts. um, They provided boots, uh, but you had to pay two pounds for them. um, What, like boot hire? So my first season for Scotland cost me forty pounds. That's incredible. So how you had to pay 2 pounds for the oh for the boots so it wasn't like a boot hire. Uh, no 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 it was an acknowledged payment just to make sure I hadn't got them for nothing. Wow. I mean it 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 really does it really does boggle the
1: mind the extent of the amateurism back back, back in the day actually.
2: Yeah, I mean it was I mean it was fantastic in some respects because obviously I was teaching then. So you know to leave um, school on a on a um, well as I did on a Wednesday afternoon, and then we'd train for uh, the two days Thursday, Friday, play Saturday, and I would ba- be back in the classroom on on Monday morning.
1: Oh, yeah,
2: sorry, that's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah because that's the that, that's the other aspect which um, I didn't actually realize. I mean I know a lot of professionals now. You know if uh, you know, for instance so I know that Byron McGuigan, for instance at Sale Sharks if he gets called up to Scotland he has to get in his car and drive up. But he gets well paid to do that. You were going from Leeds every Wednesday or you know every Saturday.
2: Yes. Um but it, it I mean it was something you you enjoyed. I mean the international game when I played it um, each event was, was a fantastic experience because, you know, to play, you know, I was playing club rugby in front of 500, a thousand people um, every week. And then you'd go to an international where Murrayfield at that time would, would, uh, um, there'd be over a hundred thousand there. Yeah. Uh, and the international weekend was, you'd play the game, you'd you'd, Turn up on the um, Wednesday night, train Thursday, Friday, play Saturday, have an official lunch with your opponents on the Saturday evening, and then you'd go out for a nightclub or a drink or whatever with the opposition. And um, actually, you know, the French team were like gods. When you played France in Paris, um, it was an incredible experience because they could go in anywhere in Paris. Uh, and um, they, they used to take us along with them. So, you know, it was that sort of experience that was quite different. And then back into school and doing the day job on Monday morning. That's incredible. Do you know, when, when you were running out
1: to these much larger crowds and you were playing in front of for your club games, did it feel to you as if the game was destined to go professional?
2: Uh, not initially, Um I mean, the international game was so popular. And in the 70s, you know, British and Irish rugby was, was very successful at that time. The Lions won in New Zealand in 71, won again in 74, um, and Wales had all the superstars, as it were. But every team, you know, had a really it, its good play, very good players. Mm. And I think it was just accepting that... Um, you know, it was a different environment that you were you were in, and at that time, I no, to be honest, I couldn't see it with the amateur basis that we were working on and operating with. With the um, committees that that ran the whole show, um, professionalism seemed a long, long way away.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, of course, so much of the emphasis was then put on the player to make sure that they were there on time, that, they, you know, that they'd they spent their own money, they'd arranged, arranged their own transport. It, it boggles me how many players we, that we must have missed out on just because the commitment was too great.
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe less so in some respects because they could watch the club games and, as the selectors did then, um, If you were asked, because you had international trials at that time, so you didn't just get picked and play for Scotland or play for England. You'd got two trial games to go through. Uh, And actually, I had four years of trials before I got my first cap. Um, Really? So there was a fairly substantial sort of system of looking at you and then trialling you Hmm. um, before you ultimately managed to get selected. And I think, you know, there were, there were very few players, in fact, I don't know of any player, who turned down the opportunity to to, to get an international cap.
1: That's really interesting. OK, so um, I, I obviously know that you played for Scotland as a player. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about was your management of Scotland, and in particular, something which I uh, I found out reading the Tom English book was, that you started using video analysis before anyone else, so um I, I guess whereas everyone used to rely on the trial games, how were you selecting your teams? Was video analysis something which you were going through even uh, early on in order to pick in order to pick your teams?
2: Um, it could do, uh, although it was more on looking at the best way to play or the best way to use a player mm-hmm. and the best way to coach a player. Sometimes, so it all wasn't. It wasn't always about picking somebody um, and then dropping them. It, it was about, uh, uh, for me, it was always about trying to evolve the players, evolve the team, and evolve the way we are trying to play. I mean, you know, the analysis originally I did by hand. I used to watch a game and I used to code it all by hand with a pencil on, did, on, on sheets of paper. Did did it? I did had my own want... coding system of. Things like how involved the player was, um, where scores came from. When I was looking at opponents, um, so it was <laughs> very arbitrary and, and very simple. When you get Sorry. now to digital, and you know, you look at, you know, what's coming up with the Lions next year in South Africa with, you know, the Vodafone Digital app, for example. Yeah. And you look at that. That fascinates me because <laughs> I go so far back to the uh, the dark days of a, a pencil and a, uh, and a sheet of paper. That's incredible. So
1: were you able to pick up the phone to anyone in different sports or were they not doing, doing it? So was football doing it or cricket or rugby league or did you literally just have to start
2: from scratch? No, it was all from stats that I put together and then um, looking at games on video uh-huh. and... Um, when I was I was still teaching at that time, and we didn't have an awful lot of money. And I always remember one of the biggest um, <laughs> uh, purchases we had was a um, back in the uh, probably be around nineteen eighty nine ninety was a four headed video recorder because it would allow me to stop the tape, and I could still see the picture oh, whereas the right. two headed videos and it was just changing from betamax to max <laughs> VHS and so on the two headed videos when you when you put it on hold actually just scrambled the the screen so to get a four headed video uh, and be able to look at things um like that and where you could hold everything and see positions of players for me was a big step forward uh, and I, that's what I did. I just used the the videos of the games and then um, coded and took the timing, uh, minutes and seconds, of where the, the pieces were that I needed to look at and then show the players and then do things individually as well. Um, um, it allowed me um, that extra, I suppose, understanding of what I could and what players could see. And how did the players react to this? Because this they're, they're must have been completely foreign. Now, as a player, um, you know, even in the seventies, um, the Scottish coach Bill Dickinson used mm. to do a stop-start. He, he just put a tape on of the game. Yeah. So there was some rudimentary uh, analysis looking at it, um, and I suppose you know when i be as a player. I, o- I was always fascinated with trying to look at doing things differently and mm-hmm. um so being able to look at a just a game and, and look back on it, which I did as a player, um it uh, sort of allowed me to develop that thought process, I think, um fairly naturally when I when I started coaching and, and the teaching background of analysis and Assessing lessons and all, it, it it was to me very similar. Amazing. So,
1: I'm I'm just looking at. Well, I, I was reading up your CV before we came online. Uh, obviously, rugby union turned professional in 1995. You joined Northampton in 1994. I assume was, would that have been that would have been your first professional job
2: within rugby? It, it, is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Go on. So I wasn't officially allowed to coach Northampton in 1994 because the game was still amateur and I was a professional and I did get a letter from the RFU oh, really? telling me that as a professional I couldn't coach a team what? so at Northampton when I was coaching we always meant we always made sure we had either fewer than 15 <laughs> or more than 15 <laughs> on the pitch yeah so that we could put our hands on our hearts and say I actually wasn't coaching a team. Wow. So why were you classed as a, as a professional then? Um, it was quite simply that, you know, rugby had a very ethos Um It should probably have gone professional um, four years earlier. Yeah. Because the time that now coaches and players were taking up um you know which is why i had to ultimately give up teaching because the headmaster then um had had enough of me being away on tours and games because the the whole um picture of international rugby had changed um mm. and that was the time in the late 80s early 90s where you then thinking it has to change yeah and and so it, at, at that point it really was only a matter of time and me being able to give up teaching and go to Scottish Life and, you know, before t- Effectively, I was working for them, but they gave me all the time off I needed. And that was my first real touch of really being able to take time and do it professionally. Right. Um, when I went to Northampton, um, we wanted everything... You know, organised. I me, mean, the players were still had jobs working, uh, but it allowed me that extra time to prepare things. And we had a fantastic chairman in Keith Barwell, who who was just a visionary, really, in many respects. And he just saw where the game was going. Uh, and really, my appointment there was just a, a year ahead of everybody else. And uh, so we had to. Play around with it a little bit for twelve or eighteen months uh, and then uh, we were ready when the game went professional northampton were, were were ready for it
1: that's incredible so were you setting up structures and processes for having full time players because because this would have been the first time anyone's ever done it
2: yes, we were talking about programs you know fitness programs uh weights um putting a a mini gym under the stand we knocked two dressing rooms into one and, and made it into a gym we knocked two other rooms together and made it into a medical room now by today's standards it was all pretty basic yeah. but it was looking at on site here we had everything we needed to hand Yeah. Um, with a great um, Phil Pask who's still involved with England um, on the fitness he's also um, um, been involved oh, I was involved there at Northampton, been in all, with England and the Lions um, since also a physiotherapist so he was brilliant fitness man and we, we worked together we brought a medical team in um, you know, I remember Dr Bill Ribbons getting involved and we had an infrastructure of being able to look after the players and players when they got injured which is Obviously still a big talking point today Yeah, But the actual structures Yes, were the things that we tried to get in first Even though the players were still amateur at the time
1: So when you had your first cohort of professional players I mean obviously you, know, you probably know them all anyway Because they were probably playing the season before But they're just here seven days a week now Was it immediately obvious to you Yes, this is going to work Or did it take a few months in And then all of a sudden a light bulb goes off And goes actually now we're really making progress
2: well, interestingly, there was a transition year, 1995 96, in England. Okay. I think in the other countries as well, but certainly in England, where the RFU didn't allow the clubs to go professional. Ah. They put a moratorium on it for 12 months. So, what we could do was make the players part time and we organised a way of paying them that allowed them to have the extra time and manage their lives as they transitioned from full-time jobs to full-time rugby yeah uh, and we did that and some of the players did go full-time at that occasion um but oh. there, there were all sorts of things changes which in a way the RFU really lost a year of going professional at that time yeah uh, but as clubs we were trying to make the most of it. So I had a group of players, some of whom were full-time, but some were, were part-time for that 12 months. And it was 1996, uh, ultimately, when we got the first full-time squad of players with us. But we had then all the programmes and all the support that we needed in place as well with the right support staff. Yeah, Because I... rugby had never had full-time medical staff for and we still didn't we still had people who were giving a lot of their time but we'd actually got there the processes in place where we could genuinely feel we were starting to have a professional support system for the players as they turned professional
1: and what kind of players did you find were most keen to become a professional were they all keen or did you find it is like mostly the younger lads who didn't have careers or you know how uh, who were who were the guys that were easiest to to make that change or make that transition?
2: Well, there was a lot of players around the intern or or close to the international teams and and I think they were the ones that made the big call. Yeah. Um so, you know, I had a very good group of players at Northampton at the time. You know, um Tim Rodber was the captain, Matt Dawson, Paul Grayson, Gregor Townsend came Um, Bodge Pound, a younger player who came through and became an international. um, Ian Hunter, Martin Bayfield. You know, there was um, uh, a lot of players Hmm. who... I think Martin Bayfield had been a policeman, so he gave up that job to go full-time. So there was a big commitment from the players to to change jobs, but these players were uh, international players or close to it. Uh, and decided to go for it, really, um, which was great. So it meant as a coach, you know, I had a, a good core of players who um, who really committed to it.
1: Now I'm just trying to cast my mind back. Did Greg, I know Greg Townsend was with you in 97, the Lions.
3: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
1: Did he stay at Northampton for the European Cup? When I seem to think he'd moved over to France or in South Africa or somewhere just before Northampton won the European Cup. With yeah, Northampton. in
2: 2000, yeah, Gregor had gone on to play in France then. That's it, France, yeah. yeah. Um, but with uh, Johnny Bell as well, the Irish centre, uh, Nick Beale, who Nick became Beale. an international, went on that 97 tour. There was five players from Northampton went on the 97 tour. Mm. Um So in a way, I was blessed with not just very good players, but they were good people. So it meant we could create an environment with our support staff who were fantastic to actually try and push the boundaries. And and that's what excited me as much as anything. And Keith Barwell, I think, characterised that as a chairman. So you'd got an environment where you could really... Try different things and challenge yourselves to be different. And I still remember, you know, to this day, we we decided we wanted uh, to win the European Cup in five years. We actually won it in four. Yes. I wasn't interested in the Premiership or National One as it was then. I wanted us to be the best team in in Europe. When they'd won it, I had then just moved on to Scotland that year. Well, Um, we. we did it by playing rugby in a slightly different way and we all bought into that and as a coach that was brilliant to be part of an experience how would you how would you define that slightly different way uh we decided to keep the ball on the on the field a lot longer yeah um we tried to play in waves of attack so we'd Got this idea where um, teams within teams that we played in little units of four and five players um, and played off each other and we had a shape. We called the cone going into contact where there was a little team at contact. Which, yeah. But the next team was already in play, ready to use the ball. And the third team was already in support, ready to work off them. So we were trying... And it, it actually was a thinking that... um I took with me then to the '97 Lions, so I'd been able to have it, if you like, as a sounding board and a, an experiment um, at the club at the time. And we, we then, as I say, tried to move it on virtually every every season.
1: Now, just before we move on to the, the Lions, which obviously everyone wants to do, uh, one last thing on Northampton. Uh, I know you'd gone to Scotland by the time that they'd won the European Cup, but fundamentally it was still a team that you laid the foundations for. How do you reflect back on that time? And even though you'd gone, did you still feel any pressure?
2: Uh, just talk a little bit about that. Um, so Paul Lark and I, Matt Dawson, we used to exchange conversations all the way through the season. Um, and in fact, I, I remember um, we did initiated couple of years before having an end of season dinner and we put a massive tent on the first team field and everybody went and I got invited back um, at that that season just before the final so we had some conversations so um, you know the people who drove it that last that year towards the European Cup were um, um, Paul Larkin and John Steele. Oh, yes, yes yes of course
1: now the Lions. Uh the thing that you're best known for. I guess the the biggest talking point about any Lions tour is always going to be the selection. How difficult is that? And also, you know, it's fair relatively easy now because you can look on YouTube, you can pull up clips of players, anyone can do it. But how were you doing it in in 97?
2: <laughs> well, I can go back and talk about 89 as well.
1: D- talk about uh, them all. Uh, <laughs>
2: No, you um, you had to do a lot of travelling. Uh, at that time, um 1989, I was coaching Scotland. It was my first season as head coach of Scotland. Yeah. So one thing it did allow me was a lot of analysis of the other teams and, and other players. And then in the downtime, when the international programme wasn't on, I watched a lot of the the Welsh, Irish and English players
1: Ah, OK. Um, so, because you can scout basically whoever you want, did you come across a player that wasn't necessarily on the international radar, but you thought, yeah, he will, he'd he be good for the Lions?
2: Um, well, one I picked up early was a youngster that I was quite impressed with at Bath, mm-hmm. who looked a bit different. And I would say I, I was you know, then wanting to look at players who would make decisions or who would be quite dangerous or difficult to, to mark. And um, um, So I asked, when I'd watched him a couple of times, I um, asked a bit about him, um, and he was a youngster called Jeremy Goscock. <laughs> that uh, was OK. And we'd already um, pencilled him into the Lions squad. And then, strangely enough, England did pick him before the Lions went i yeah. think to play against romania um that that year and then and then uh, jerry came on on tour in 89 and and of course made the last two tests and um uh, um scored a brilliant try in the second test in brisbane to yeah make sure we won we won that game so you know it's when you get things like that will greenwood in 97 uh, will hadn't played for england then but again watching him you could just see the difference of how quickly these players see things. Yes. So although I hadn't played for England at that time, I was watching him as much off the ball as I was watching him on the ball um, and just how quickly he saw support lines, how he got into good positions. And again, in 97, we were looking for players that could think for themselves, but particularly could see things early and react. mm um, because I felt that that 's what was going to be needed if we were going to really make inroads into beating south Africa,
1: yeah, uh how much of your selection process was looking at the national teams, and was there any sorry, was there ever any pressure to pick certain players because unions are powerful and they want a certain amount of their players going on tour, or did you have complete independence?
2: No, we you know, I, I mean as as head coach you you've got that independence. Clive Rollins, who was the manager in eighty nine, was a brilliant manager. Mm. Um and he always when we were doing the selection, um he always said so he didn't say I had the last say, but he always said I had two jokers. So oh. ultimately when we picked a group, I could play the two jokers if I wanted uh, felt um it needed to be changed um which I thought was a great way of doing it, because we'd four selectors, one from each country, yeah, so they knew their own players well ah, but right. then they looked by position, and I had um like selectors looking at different areas of the team and what was needed and um and then they would report back and they would look at all four countries of players. Um, you know, for example, Don Lenehan looked at the second row, and, the, but generally the forwards, um, and did that not just for Ireland, but but also the other three countries. And so we had discussions. Yes. Um, and we never uh, voted um, in that. We just kept discussing and kept looking at what we wanted um, and um, kept talking through wh- where we thought players complemented each other. Yes. Um, Because I've always believed as well the chemistry is important. I talked to the other international coaches about what these players were like away from training, away from the game, because 95% of your time on tour is not playing rugby. Yes. Um, So it's important that they have a strength of character, a mentality and a confidence to be able to do things well when it matters, but also obviously set an example to create a really positive environment. And that's what we did in 89. 93 was the only time that didn't happen, and that was actually voted. So there were players on that tour that I hadn't voted for, if you like, yeah. um with, with a selection group, Um and some went down to votes, which was disappointing. But actually I learned a big lesson in that one um, because when Fran Cotton, who was manager in 97, asked me to be head coach, um, I just said to Fran, look, I said, if I do, can I make sure that you, me and Jim Telfer, who I wanted as assistant coach, pick the team? Ultimately, I said, if we fail... I want to fail with the players we've chosen, not that somebody else has chosen. So, '93 yes. was a big lesson in selection, um, and again in '97, like '89, uh, we didn't vote and we we just talked through. Um, but '97 was different because it was the first professional Lions tour, and I'd had chance to go to South Africa the year before yeah. and actually watch them playing a Test series against the All Blacks, and I spent a week with the All Blacks just talking <laughs> about how they found South Africa because they went every year, yeah. and I hadn't been since 1974 when I was there as a player. Um, so, uh, and John Hart, who was the coach at the time, was really helpful, so I came back with a report of things and needed to be in place, and and but I also saw, looking at the game live, the sort of rugby we were going to have to play if we wanted to beat South Africa who at the time were world champions yeah uh, and funnily enough that tour in 96 the all black tour was the first time New Zealand had beaten South Africa in South Africa in their history so it shows how difficult it is yeah. to actually beat South Africa on their own on their own turf yeah and I'm, so I'll... that was really helpful for me to be able to do that the the year before
1: yeah, and as I'm sure that the Lions will find out this year, oh, not this year, next calendar year, uh, they are in, they, uh, uh, South Africa are an incredibly t- tough team to beat. Um, just on touring, because I think of cricket, and being a cricket professional seems brilliant, except for the length of the tour. And I think for most rugby union players, they're never going to go on a tour anything like as long as the Lions tour. Does your role change as a head coach? Do you find that you have to become more approachable, or do you, or is it actually the is it actually the opposite? Do you feel that you need to be a bit more distant from distant from them?
2: Um, no, I, I I think you have to understand the players, and they have to understand you. Mm. Um, in the in the past, I've said it's a bit like a benevolent dictator, that um, but it, it isn't. More and more now, players are taking responsibility and and making decisions. Yeah. Um, on you know, what's working and what's not working. And ultimately I suppose I go back to my teaching days that you you're looking at make, getting the best out of your class and, and that everybody is not the same and everybody understands things differently. Um and you know, even in two thousand and nine we we started to give information educationally in four different ways because we know players learn and take information in differently so we wanted to make sure that we could have something in a, in a way that everybody could understand and then you could pick it up individually with players when they would come back which um, best suited them but also which parts they needed uh, clarification on and, and I don't think that changes you with a group of people as group. You have to respect each other. You have to respect the differences mm. and by doing that, you become a much stronger unit and and I learned that as a player in 1974. in seventy four I mean that was nearly a four month tour yeah you know, twenty two games twenty six games in seventy seven against New Zealand, so you know it'll weigh a lot and if you get it right, actually it just improves you. I was improved tremendously as a player on the 74th Tour. You know, people always commented when I came back how different I looked and that was purely because I was playing alongside some of the best players who ever played rugby. Gareth Edwards and yeah. Willie John McBride, uh, you know, it was captain and JPR Williams was behind. JJ on the wing who unfortunately just passed away this last yeah. week. Um, you know, there there was exceptional talent players around you Uh, so you had such a fantastic learning environment as a player to improve and that's what I think is one of the unique parts of what the Lions brings is you have that ability to just feed off players that you wouldn't normally play with Mm. and players you've played against don't necessarily understand and as you build the chemistry and you know, I played the Test Series with Dick Milliken in the centre, the Irish centre. Yeah. Dick and I still speak, still speak to this day. We'll still exchange texts or a phone call um, because it built up something where you had something quite special. And, uh, you know, I said to the players in 97, when, you, when it's right, you look at each other and you know exactly what you're teammates going to do and, and that buys you seconds and at test match level if you're doing things one, two, three seconds quicker than your opponents or working off each other that much quicker mm. then you end up with a much higher performance um. I'm just going to ask you one last question
1: because I am aware I, I am aware of time, and I, I do wish that I had another hour or so because uh, I feel there's so so much more that uh, I should I, I should have asked. Uh, and apologies for not getting the get getting the quality of question questioning. Um, but when on online tours, and you know, it's not always plain sailing. How do you go about rallying the group after a disappointment? Because there are plenty of them.
2: Well. Y- you you recognize the disappointment and and it's out front um and you know you let the players relax a bit uh, after it because they'll have their own thinking time as well and then that's where analysis comes in um you know and we've you know said earlier that today there's digital um analysis um you know and, with with Vodafone involved in, in this coming up lines tour, mm. it shows you how important analysis communication is in actually creating the right performance and the right environment. And if you can get a player to look at it that way, you actually have to give them time. Mm. And and sometimes I would cancel a session or or two to, and just tell them to go have a break. Yeah. And completely change and um because it's so easy to get on top of it and sometimes you know in a way you can be tougher in your analysis when you're winning mm. because you can then really look at things knowing that everything's in a positive when you're losing it's actually looking for the things that will make the difference yeah and then concentrating on that um and and actually being positive so you get out and do it well so immediately the players see what can be done differently and the impact it has on what the performance can look like. And I think that's what you're always comparing, is that a player understands that we might have to change something. But as a coach, the great thing for me is when a player or a group of players who they will do now with the analysis um, will look at something and say, look, we know we want to get to this point or do it this way, but we think we can do it in a different, better way. to get a better outcome. Now, when that comes back to a coach, that's brilliant. Because here you have the players assessing and actually telling you what they think the best way of doing something is. And that, you know you're onto something a bit special then. Yeah. And I I guess it is the
1: adversity and the difficulty of of the whole Lions touring ethos which makes it so special when when, when you finally do win.
2: It is. And... I think the thing that's evolved, particularly, you know, I'd say since 97, is this rapport the Lions have with the fans yeah. and the support. Um, I think they are probably, the, uh, and it, this goes across sports, I mean, England a bit with the cricket and the Ryder Cup at golf, but everybody now, when they think of the Lions, thinks of the support and the supporters, thirty, thirty-five thousand 35,000 people going halfway across the world. To support them, and I think all that is the bit that's, um, I think, gives a, an edge and an understanding to what you're representing, because you actually see the wall of red when you run out, um, and you know that, you know, there are people from other countries who are actually supporting you, which I found, particularly as a yes, coach, of really powerful.
1: Yeah. Well. Serene thank you so much for spending your time I really really appreciate it I know that our listeners will really appreciate it um and I know I said I'd let you go with the last question but this here honestly is the last question and um you can keep it as brief as you like but how do you think the lions will go on this time around in South Africa
2: I think they'll go I think they'll go well we've a lot of good players at the moment in the four countries um so there's a lot of talent around Warren Gatland knows exactly what's needed yeah. um, from the Lions. You know, he's he's been a fantastic coach for the for the Lions. And, you know, I shared that tour in 2009 with him and he understands um, what the Lions is. And, you know, I remember him saying back in 2009, early in the tour, um, I wanted him to speak to the players. And he, he said, can we leave it for a while? He said, I don't think I've earned the right yet to speak to a group wow. of Lions. Now, that is a person who understands, you know, what the Lions mean to players as well. That's an incredible that, insight. Um, you know, you, you build a respect and you build an involvement, which, um, and he, he said, it's the first time I've seen British and Irish players look at a badge the same way as a New Zealander looks at an all-black, uh, an all-black looks at an uh, all-black badge.
1: Well, I think that's an absolutely fantastic place to leave it. Uh Sarian, I hope you enjoy the Lake District and I hope you enjoy this year's Lions even more. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, JB. Take care.